right, stay standing for a moment. We want to pray while we're standing. God, we thank you so much for the truthfulness there. We're so moved by the picture of you chasing us down so that we could experience your love. Psalm 23 says that the Lord pursues us, chases after us, so that he can pour his love over us. We just thank you so much for that picture. Lord, I know that everyone here in the room right now, not everyone's experienced that love. They hear us sing about it. I see some of us actively express our gratitude or our worship to you. They wonder what that's about. And I pray today that you would show yourself. And as you show yourself, that barriers would be taken down and an openness would be there just to say yes, just to begin, just to begin the journey. And God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity we have now to hear your words of care and concern today. So we have a moment to think about a reset in life that we can reset today. We can change the trajectory of our lives today. We can move into living a life that you've designed us to live. And we can do that today. We just thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a seat, that'd be wonderful, and uh, we'll just kick right in today uh, in this new series, and so if you want to, you can go ahead and grab your message notes out of your program, that'd be wonderful. Uh, they look like this, and so you can follow along and take notes today. Also, if you have your Bible, I'd love it if you'd open it to Mark chapter 12, because that's where we're going to be uh, for today and for the next, for actually the entire series, is we're going to keep coming back to these same verses in Mark chapter 12, because they're going to be our launching point as we talk about this series uh, on reset. And just want to say, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. So if you'll stop at a bookshelf right out there, that you can pick up a Bible and uh, just take it. It's free. It's our gift to you, as well as a gift at the Welcome Center if you're a guest. So you can do that while you're here today. Also, if you notice, there's some of the paintings that were done for Easter. They're in the lobby. We're going to rotate those through over the next few weeks so you can see the beautiful art that was painted uh, as we experienced Easter together. And so it'd be wonderful if you'd just take a look at that. So uh, this series, as I mentioned last week as we were closing out the service, it really comes from you and uh, listening to you and stalking you on social media and all the things that, you know, a pastor would do. Uh, and so uh, just, you know, listening to the rumblings, the rumblings that people have said, they've been talking about, the feelings of uh, feeling stress, uh, feeling overloaded, feeling stretched too thin, overwhelmed, just, you know, basically having difficulty just trying to manage life, let alone trying to get ahead, trying to do the things that they want to do, just trying to maintain the life that they're living. I've heard a lot of frustration being expressed because more and more people are beginning to come to the understanding and realization that they can't just do everything for everyone all the time. And the hardest one they have in their lives to say no to is themselves. So we're going to talk today about how we can take a reset in that and how we can look at life in a different way. Also, when people talk to me and, and they, uh, you know, because I'm a pastor, I can just sense that sometimes when they're talking about all this, about the stress that they're going through in their lives, they're looking at me and going, and they feel guilty because they look at me and they think, because God is not even close to being center in my life. In fact, there's a, you know, he's being pushed further and further out until I'm not even sure I know him anymore. 
and that sense about that. Many people today are writing about this. It's not just a phenomenon that I've heard from you. Uh, and so just beginning this series and all the research for it, I mean, there's just slews of blogs and articles and books written about uh, the negative and often the disastrous results of stress and that's being experienced by so many uh, as we go through life. In 2012, there was a new sickness that was, di- uh, was uh, defined, and the new sickness was called hurry sickness. You guys heard of this? Hurry sickness, you know, just the fact that we can't slow down, and so we end up rushing from one thing to another. And so, you know, you have hurry sickness, folks, when you have a minute and you're thinking, I've got to be doing something, or you're feeling guilty because you're not doing more in that moment. Another term that's being coined right now to help us understand this whole thing is option overload. Um, And so, just the whole idea that there are too many options. It was coined by a woman named Sheena Iyengard, she was a student at Stanford. Now she's actually a professor at Columbia University, and she did a study, this is a crazy study, because she went into this grocery store over in the Stanford area, it was one of those gourmet stores, and she counted over 300 different varieties of jams and jelly. 300. And so she did a study, she said, okay, I just want to know, will customers, will they be more likely to buy jam and jelly if they have more options or less options? More options or less options. She did a study. She set up a table in the store. uh, And one day, she put 24 jars of jams and jelly. And she counted how many people bought. And then on the next day, she had six jars of jam and jelly. And she wanted to see which would be the most, uh, which day people would buy the most jam or jelly. So you probably know what I'm going to say in just a minute. Is that she, you already know what she discovered. Is that customers actually bought more jam and jelly when they had six jars to choose from instead of 24 jars to choose from. And she coined this whole thing, option overload. She actually discovered it was, it was crazy because she discovered that customers were 10 times more likely to buy a jar of jam or jelly from a table with only six options as they were from a table with 24 options. And it seems like, this is the deduction here, is that they had, when their options were fewer, they had less stress and they ended up buying more jam and jelly when they had the fewer options. And she coined this term, option overload. And so reflecting on this, she said this. She wanted to say the same thing is true in every area of life. It's not just about jam or jelly. We have so many options. This is what she said. We have so many options about everything, or at least we perceive we do, and we actually feel frozen and paralyzed and unable to make decisions. And so what happens at the end is we end up not making a decision at all. How many of you guys have ever sat before the Netflix screen before? And you're thinking, I'm going to pick a movie out. And so after an hour of going through the Netflix movies, you have to just turn it off and go to the other room. Anybody, I do this. Anybody, you know, the same thing, right? Option overload. But folks, this is more important than to talk about than just about our Netflix viewing, our jam and jelly purchases, okay? It goes much deeper than that because we need to understand that when we make choices, we, in order to make correct choices, we have to make them based upon priorities. And so we begin today's series about talking about priorities, Your priorities determine the life you live. They determine the poorest person you become. They determine the impact you have. Your priorities set the trajectory for your life. So um, I'm just going to begin. I want to begin by giving you some books that you might read. Here's another thing I know that this is such a culturally relevant issue is that if you just Google this, it's crazy how much is available. Well, here's some. I'm going to give you some Christ-based books that you might read. Um, And so the first one is called Reset. That's where I got the title of the series, Reset. And um, this one is for men, and just so you know, it's specifically designed to help men. 
And so all the images are about the garage, okay? You go into the garage, okay? So this is all the images in here, all the metaphors are this. And then we have one that's for women, it's called Refresh. And so this is written from a woman's perspective, talking about the kinds of things that a woman would relate to about, you know, overload. And then I was going to share this. This is called Life Without Lack. It's by Dallas Willard. Uh, this is a book that was written from his writings. He's no longer living, but it was written from his writings. So he, you know, his legacy goes on and on. And it's on the 23rd Psalm. And I'm just going to quote from this book today as we go through our time together. And then I have some other books in the uh, bookstore that you might want to look at as well as we come to the topics we're going to look at. One is on grief. One is on marriage. You can look at those if you want to. But I'm just going to give you some of the common causes that I've sensed that we... Uh, lead to burnout, lead to stress. And so you might fill these in just quickly, four things. One is unbalanced schedules. So our schedules are out of balance. We're trying to do too much, thinking that if I don't, you know, it's a fear of missing out, the whole premise that if I don't do these things, that somehow I'm going to miss out on something. And so our, our schedules are totally out of balance. And we end up many times living by the tyranny, the urgent, or we're going to be driven by our desires. I'm going to talk about that a lot today. Uh, Brady Boyd, uh, he wrote the book that's mentioned on your card, okay? So there's a card in your program that talks about the series, and this one actually gives you the, the messages on it, uh, and then at the bottom it says this. He talks about, ultimately, every problem I see in every person I know is a problem of moving too fast for too long in too many aspects of life. Can you relate to that? Too many aspects of life. See, we've lost our sense of balance, so much so that most of us don't even have any idea of what a sustainable schedule looks like because we're so guilty to even try to form one or make one. We, so we overschedule our calendars with more and more stuff. The second is uncontrolled appetites. Uncontrolled appetites. Um, we just have to realize that we keep consuming, and you know, our culture is designed to make thing, everything that comes out better. Notice that? Better or good in some way. And so we just keep consuming more and more better and better and better and gooder and gooder and gooder. Bad grammar. But we just keep consuming because we think it's going to somehow satiate us in some way. And so we're consuming so much that it's taking a toll on us physically, emotionally, mentally, and even relationally. And we just have to realize that there's a limit on how much we can actually consume and remain healthy. Second is unrestricted media. Unrestricted media. And gosh, you know, just, you just want to stay away from the news right now and just hear all the stuff that's going on with Facebook uh, particularly. But... It's just, just probably the tip of the iceberg, folks. And so um, we, with our media, some of us, we're just indiscriminate. That's all that I can say. We're just indiscriminate. And I just say we're not wise. And we, we just allow all the feeds to just come right into our devices. And we say yes to everything because, once again, we're fear of missing out. We don't want to miss out on something. And so we're just indiscriminately being manipulated by our media intake. Uh, some of you are, you know, like into the 24-hour news thing, and so um, I don't ever, you notice how much stress that causes you uh, to be able to just watch the news that much, that long. Uh, the BBC did a study and determined that some media consumers, and now this wouldn't be all media consumers, but some actually developed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder just simply from watching the news, from watching the news. And so what we have to do is we have to restrict our media content, restrict our media input. And so I would just say, too, you see so much written about teenagers today and how you know, teenagers today have more than ever, and yet they have the higher you know, percentages of depression and sadness and loneliness and 
uh, self-cutting uh, self or self-hurting in some way, uh, suicide, it's all there. And they tie much of that to their media consumption, just the media consumption. It's unrestricted uh, as it comes to us. And then the last one would be undeclared priorities, undeclared priorities, just basically, I'm just not willing to work, do the work to do what's important. So I'm not willing to do the work to know what's important, and I'm not do the, willing to do the work to actually do what I've said is most important. Or as I said earlier, it's the fear of missing out. And so I may do my priorities. I may even do a strategy to meet those priorities, but I'm not going to tell anyone because if I tell someone, I'm accountable. So we, we don't declare our priorities so that we can be accountable to the things we say are important. Matthew Kelly, he's another guy who wrote a book on this whole idea. I wish I had it with me today because it's an awesome book. Uh, he said this. He says, we must decide what is really important, really necessary, and make it a priority, make time for it. Otherwise, the siren call, the siren call, you know, the sirens that were calling, and you couldn't go through the passageway because you would listen to them and you'd be pulled to them. The siren call of the world will always keep us busy and distracted from what is really important. So today what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to focus on priorities. And uh, I'll just say this. Some of you already have this down. You're, all, you're sitting there going, you're smug right now. You say, I brought, you know, Ron, you're not talking to me. I've got this down. I got it down completely. I worked out my priorities. I've got an action plan. You just want to see my phone or my, you know, my calendaring system. I've got it down. So you don't need to worry about me. And so I just want you to know that I'll talk to everybody else in this series, okay, because they need it. Uh, but I think you probably do too in many ways. Uh, but I just say, once again, because most, most, so much is being written about balance, about burnout, about stress overload, about hurry, about emptiness, about loneliness, about addiction, and about dropout, I just think some of us really, really need this. And I found that to be true about me. And so as I began, especially the topic that we're going to look at today, oh, man, this was so revealing to me. And, uh, you know, because I started reading the symptoms of stress and that uh, signs you have stress in your life. I think it was on MD.com, you know, WebMD, that's what it was. And so I'm reading down all these symptoms of stress. I'm going, I have a lot of these symptoms, but I don't have stress. <laughs> or I'm dealing with it better than other people. <laughs> Serious, that's what I thought. And so what I realized is, is in God, a Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit moment, he says, you're not dealing with it as well as you think. And that's why you're having these symptoms. So let's just dig into this and let's look at these things about what we're going to talk about. So let me give you some context for the verses that we're going to use. Each week of the series, we're going to come back to these verses. It's an incident from Mark chapter 12. And a religious leader, a scribe, uh, it would be a professional clergy person or professional theologian, comes to Jesus and he wants to talk to Jesus and he wants to ask him a question. And so his job was to transcribe the scriptures. So he was continually writing, you know, looking at one copy and writing another, looking at one copy, writing another. And so that's what he did. And so he was very familiar with the law. He was very familiar with the Old Testament. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all? Tell me, what's the greatest commandment of all? Now, I just want you to know, the deal is this, is that we all know that God gave Moses 10 commandments, Right? Ten commandments. But what had happened is that religion, with all the well-meaning, well-meaning here, is that the religious people of the days had gone through the Old Testament and they had found every time that there was a command in the Old Testament, 
And so they had expanded 10 commandments that God said 10 is enough and to 613. 613. Now, if you're like me, you're probably depressed right now to hear that. Uh, because, you know, if you're thinking there's only 10 and you're not doing very well at keeping those, just think of what 613 is like, right? To try to keep those. Uh, they, and they, they were just trying to do what was right, so just don't you know, judge them because we would maybe be guilty in the same way. They were trying to do what was right because they wanted to keep God's law. And so they ended up with 613. There were 248 positive commands, and then there was 365 negative commands. So 248, here's what to do, and 365, here's, not, here's what not to do. And so the scribe comes to Jesus, and he says, which of these is most important? Now, I just think there's a couple things going on, because if you look at Mark 12 in the context, is that Jesus had been having debates with religious leaders in Mark 12, and the purpose of the debate was to, uh, in some way, uh, make Jesus' message invalidated, invalidate it in some way by saying he's not keeping the law or the rules. So at some point, maybe this guy came to Jesus and says, if he's going to say there's just one, well, what about the other 612? So he must not really be believing the law. And so we can't believe that may have been why he was coming. But I think it also had to do that it came from the fact that he was a scribe and he'd come to Jesus out of his frustration and his burnout and his stress from his own life that caused him to be overloaded, overwhelmed by the pressures that were being put on him because of religious beliefs and by the fact that he was a professional theologian. We know, just think about it, the pressure of 613 rules that you're trying to keep. Imagine the pressure. It was overwhelming. And we know because Jesus confronted even the most religious of people of his time and said, you're not keeping them all yourself, but you're asking other people to keep the ones that you think are more important yourself. And so we know that because Jesus, in Matthew 11, he says that we should come to him, all you are weary and burdened down, basically from trying to be religious, and I will give you, take my yoke on you, he said, and I will give you rest. So the scribe comes to Jesus that day for clarification. Let's just say that. And the scribe was really asking, Jesus, what do I do with my life? Jesus, what do I do with my one and my only life? And so here's what Jesus said. Jesus replied, verse 29, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. So let's just get that straight right up front. And because of that, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he'd only asked for one, but Jesus gave him two. Okay, so he got two for the price of one. He says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And here, well, folks, we have a reset. It's a reset. Jesus reset the trajectory of this man's life. And this is what's available for you. Right now, today, no matter what you think you're pursuing, no matter where you're going, is that Jesus wants to offer you a reset, and he wants to say, if you're going to give your one and only life to something, this is what I want you to give your one and only life for. And this is going to be a wake-up call. This is going to be a struggle. But as we talked about last week, we have resurrection power available to us to do what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus is saying, okay, you want to know? Here's what's most important. This is to be your greatest priority in life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And oh, by the way, love everyone else the way you want who you loved yourself. Do that. Do that. 
And I think that if we do what we're called to do, if we take this reset, if we really take this seriously, that we will experience less stress, we will be less overloaded, we will have less burnout, there will be fewer of us dropping out because we're confused, there will be fewer, more of us giving ourselves fully to the things that God would say more important and we're having a greater impact in the, in the life than we could ever imagine just because we simply chose to put him first. Because, see, here's the deal. God wants to be first. So, you know, a lot of time management systems will say, okay, here's a pie chart, right? Pie chart, and then you divide your little sections of life by slices of pie. And many of us, when we do that, we're like, oh, that sounds really good, right? Okay, so God, you get a slice of the pie. Well, folks, God don't want to be a slice of your pie at all. Others of us, we can't, well, it's like a wheel. And so we have spokes, and all the spokes represent an area of my life. God doesn't want to be a spoke in your wheel. God wants to be the hub of your wheel. He wants to be the center of your wheel. He wants to be the place that, from which everything else emanates in your life and comes from. Love God first. In fact, that's what the first Ten Commandments are all about. I'm going to put, read these here. These are from Exodus 20, and so I've skipped some verses just to kind of help us to get the gist of the Ten Commandments. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol. So there's one, two. You must not make yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the sea or on the earth. Three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Four, you have six days each week for ordinary work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. So these are the first four commandments uh, of the Big Ten. And these have to do with loving God first. They have to all, and by the way, just so you know, the next six of the Ten Commandments all have to do with loving others. So that's why this will be where we're going to be this entire series, is just loving God first and loving others. We're going to talk about this for 11 weeks because it's that important. It's the most important. So how do I love God first? How do I love God as my highest priority? So I'm going to give you these four things. It'll be the next four weeks, just so you can kind of have a heads up, define the terms so we can know where we're going. The first is I love God with all my heart, and that means all my desires and affections, all my desires and affections. So that's what heart means, that my desires and my affections. Love the Lord God with all your passion, and this means that I have to lead my heart. We're going to talk about this a lot today. I have to lead my heart rather than let my heart lead me. Second, love the Lord with all my soul means with all my pursuits or boundaries. I know that's not going to make sense today, but it will next week. All my pursuits and boundaries, talking about my will, our soul is the volitional part of who we are. You make decisions with your soul. Your soul guides you. Your soul is the control center of your life. Love God with all your mind means to surrender all my thoughts and attitudes. So we're going to talk about thoughts and attitudes on this day. I give him all of my thoughts and attitudes. The mind is the information storehouse. Our mind gives us the information we need to make decisions, which our soul acts on. So you're going to see how this all fits together. And then love God with all my strength means to with all my actions and energy. It's a physical thing. All my actions and energy. I love him with the strength that he gives me. And we're going to look at the idea this week as we talk about this is that I bring my weaknesses to him and I then he empowers me through his Holy Spirit, resurrection power, to do what I couldn't do unless he was empowering me or I couldn't do in my own human abilities. And then what happens is as I see results that are just blowing me away, I can't believe this, can't believe what's happening because I'm actually surrendering to him, I'll boast in God. I'll boast in God. So that's how I know I'm living in his strength when I do that. 
Okay, so I want to turn on the backside of your notes, and what I want to do is just really quickly, I want to talk today about resetting priorities, and I wish I could have had the whole message to do this, but I had to introduce the, the whole series first, and I think that that's going to be helpful for us as we go along. So as we go through the series, you might want to go back and rewatch the message from today just to remind yourself, why are we doing this series? Why is it so important? And it might help you to do that. So I was going to talk about resetting priorities today. And so it begins, we're talking about our heart, right? And so it begins when I guard my heart. It begins when I guard my heart. Now, you have to know that when we talk about this, we're talking about people who are followers of Jesus. So just be clear on that. And so uh, a heart that's apart from Jesus is not, not going to be responsive to Jesus. But a heart that's in Jesus, where Jesus is in your heart, then it's going to be responsive to him. But I have to guard my heart. And so let's just read this verse again from Romans 4.23 that John read to us. Guard your heart. Would you underline this? Above all else. Above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So heart, we're going to start in the heart first because it's the most important. Above all else, for the heart determines the course of your life. So what he's saying is, is that your heart is so important, and we're not talking about the, you know, the thing in here that pumps, okay, that keeps me alive. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about a symbol, uh, and it's a metaphor, and so we're talking about the heart, a spiritual heart that the Bible says we have. And he's saying that the condition of your heart is important because the condition of your heart will directly determine the quality of your life. The condition of your heart is important because the condition of your heart will directly determine the quality of your life. So guard your heart. So your heart is the part of you that desires now, your heart doesn't know the difference between things that are heart harmful or helpful. Your heart only knows what is appealing or in some way will meet the needs that you have or will active, your, your pleasure center is activated. And so your heart goes after what is going to give it pleasure, what is going to give it joy, what is going to be able to give it meaning in life. So the heart is indiscriminate, okay? So you have to guard your heart. You have to guard this thing that's indiscriminate. The heart is the part of our being that desires strongly, has strong affections for, and it's based on this deep feeling that if I can have this, then I'm going to have my joy filled. I'm going to have a fulfilled experience. I'm going to have life. The heart desires or has strong affections for that which it believes will help it experience life joyfully. That's a good way to say it. Experience life joyfully. Your heart will pull you toward what it believes will make you happy or will fill your needs. The heart is the part of you that longs for beauty, that longs for meaning, and longs for fulfillment. The problem is it's indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. That's why it's important to guard your heart because an unguarded heart will cause you to be attracted to things and pursue things that are not God's best for you. Not God's best for you. In fact, an unguarded heart will cause you to place stuff over priorities, success over priorities, status over priorities, experience over priorities, but all those are also being placed over God because you've said that's most important. This is why Jeremiah 17, 9, you might just write this down. It's not on the screens or not in your notes. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? 
This is why, you know, I hear people say, you know, flippantly, and it's actually true, but the way we say it's not helpful, is that the problem in our world is not a blank problem, it's a sin problem. You guys heard that, right? It's really not helpful to say that. It's helpful to know that and to help people with the sin issues in their lives, but that probably doesn't do a lot of good to say. Uh, and doing that. And so what we have to realize is, is that our hearts are definitely moving toward that which is wicked. And we have to guard them. We have to set up high fences. We have to set up high barriers that keep our heart from being able to move out and to have its needs met in ways that don't honor God. So the message of the heart is really this. And it's calling out to you. Calling out to you. If I have this, if I just have this, I will have meaning. And I will have joy, the joy I long for. And then I will be secure. And then I'll be recognized for being someone special and important. Oswald Chambers, he's one of my favorite pastors, and I love his sermons that have been written in uh, several books, but especially his biography is just amazing. Um, but he said this, he says, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to ask, what is your anything? What is your anything? Loyalty to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'd show us. Help us to see what is our anything so that we can put a guard over our hearts. So how do we guard our heart? Well, I just want to give you one idea, and that's by reading the Bible. We guard our heart by reading the Bible. And you guys, you know what? Do you know how many times in Ron's messages he says the answer is to read the Bible? And I know you're thinking that right now. How many times does he say read the Bible? Well, because that's the source of truth. That's the source of God's word. That's what he says to us. Now, the book I mentioned to you earlier from Dallas Wilder called Life Without Lack, here's a quote from that book. He says this. He says, deciding to fill our minds with God is how we guard our hearts. Here's how we do it. To listen to his word and nourish our whole being with it is not a nice thing we might do occasionally. Our very lives depend on it. As the psalmist said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have to guard my heart. So here's some, just some verses from 1 John that talk about the pull of our hearts and the, how the world pulls on them. 1 John 2 says this, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Remember, that's what your heart is longing for. A craving for everything we see, what your heart is longing for. And then pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, clearly. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So our hearts must be guarded because our hearts are going to pursue. They're indiscriminate. They're going to pursue those things that will lead us into moving away from placing God's first. Second idea is this. I need to guide my heart. So I reset my priorities by guiding my heart. So how do I guide my heart? Okay, so remember, it's indiscriminate, and it's going to go after everything that it thinks will fill it, right? So how do I guide it? Because... If it's going to pursue, I want to make sure that I'm the one holding the reins, right? So I'm holding the reins. How do I guide my heart? Well, it's pretty clear in the Bible what Jesus says here is the way I guide my heart is I make a decision, a priority that I'd be asking you to make today that I am going to pursue God first in every area of my life. I'm going to pursue God first, and I'm going to do what I think he says in every area of my life. And so... If I say that, and then I hear things, then I'm going to 
act on that, and I'm going to realize that that would be God's will, and so that's what we talk about next week. We talk about the soul. The soul is volitionally choosing as the control center to say yes to God when I understand that this might be his will. And when I put him first, then he promised to give me the desires of my heart. That's what Matthew 6 says. Wherever your treasure is, there's the, there the desires of your heart will also be. Then he says to seek the kingdom of God above all else. Above all else. Just seek the kingdom of God. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So as I seek the kingdom of God, I will move my heart toward living righteously, which means in right relationship with God, doing what he says is best for me. And then as I'm doing that, my heart will have everything it needs. Do you see how important this is? Do you see how, I'm going to say easy it is, but this is not easy. Just to know, to follow him, to guide my heart. Jesus says, the way to guide your heart is to continually seek to know what God's priorities are for your life. Continually do that. So I'm just going to give you two ideas that help you guide your heart. First one is this, uh, from Psalm 37. It says this, take delight. So here's how you guide your heart. Take delight in the Lord. I need to take opportunity to take delight in the Lord, and he will then give you the desires of your heart. So we have to learn to delight in God. That's why I love it that you are here today to sing with us. Uh, I can't talk enough about the power of what happens when we sing together. I mean, I can sing at home, and there's power in that. But there, when we come together and we have the corporate body singing, and we have people from all situations and all circumstances who are together declaring their praise and taking delight in God, there's power in that. And as I talk about what happens when we come here and we sing, we're rehearsing the goodness of God together. And so we have folks that come in and they're wondering, is God good? They're, they're discouraged. They're going through difficulty. And they look around, they see other people rehearsing out loud the goodness of God, and they're buoyed, they're lifted up. And then they take delight in God. And when we have delight in God, then we're going to find that delight in Him allows us to guard our heart towards things that actually are good for us according to Him. So we do that by that. Second is by choosing to obey, and that's what Jesus talks about in John 14, 15. I hate to tell you this, but when Jesus said that there's only you know, two, two commandments, He wasn't saying there are no commandments, okay? He wasn't saying that at all. He's saying these are the most important. The you know, Bible's full of commandments, and they're full of things that Jesus said to do. They're just not the end. Uh, they're the means, okay? They're just not the end. And he says this, if you love me, obey my commandments. So it means if you're delighting in me, obey my commandments. And you'll know that. You'll know how easy it is to obey my commandments when it's easier to do that than not. When your heart is becoming discriminatory and your heart is being filled with God and so you you want to obey his commandments simply because you realize how much he loves you the reckless love of God and how that comes at you so the bottom line according to Jesus is that we would guide our hearts toward God guide our hearts toward God the greatest commandment and then that we would then guide our hearts in serving others giving ourselves away I guide my heart when I learn to trust and obey him in all things, whether I understand it or not. That's what we'll talk about next week, whether I understand it or not. So I just close with a thought about guarding your heart, guiding your heart. Um, as I said, this research was 
over the top and things that I could have talked about today that I thought were pertinent. But this is one I think is very pertinent that we can actually bring out today. And I think you'll find it very meaningful as well. There's an, an analogy. And so you guys got to know when I start talking about science that I'm out of my, out of my league, right? You know that? Uh, so I, I really research this to make sure I'm at least close, okay? So, and so close to being completely accurate. There's a great analogy from the medical world about how, what happens when a person receives a heart transplant. And so I actually went out to a heart transplant center and downloaded the protocol that they would give for a patient who's about to have a heart transplant about what's going to happen after their transplant. And so there's an experience that happens in someone who has a heart transplant. It's called denervation. So it's denervation. Denervation. Because what happens is when you have a heart that's been transplanted, all the nerves to and from the heart are cut and severed of both hearts. The one that's taken out and then the one that was taken out of somebody else and put in. All the nerves have been severed in order to accomplish the transplant. And basically, all the heart knows what to do is to beat. That's all it knows. It just knows to beat. So when a person then has their heart transplant, the heart has to be trained, guided, to beat more when I engage in physical activity. And it has to be trained, guided, to slow down because it doesn't know to slow down when it's time to rest. And I was reading about this gal that was, um, she's a pretty ambitious mountain climber, and she had a heart transplant. And uh, so she was going through this time after her transplant where she was going back into climbing mountains again. And so what she discovered is, and this is the way she said it, is she says, I had to learn to whisper to my heart. I had to learn to whisper to my heart. So as I started up the mountain, I had to whisper to my heart, heart, I really need you right now. Heart beat faster. And when I got to the places where we had stopped or I got to the peak, I had to whisper to my heart. Heart, stop beating so hard right now. I need to rest. And what she was doing is she's saying, I've learned to guide my heart. And I just love that, folks, because what happens within each of us, when we say yes to Jesus Christ, it says that we've been given a new heart. A new heart. And so we have a heart that's been planted inside of us now. And so we have to reconnect the nerve endings. And then we have to guide it. And so with the way I guide my heart is I whisper to myself. What do I whisper? God's word. I whisper God's word to my heart. And as I continually say it out loud, as I'm whispering out loud, then my nerve endings, the nerves in my heart are coming back together again and it becomes more natural to do the things of God. You see how powerful that is for an analogy for us? I just love this picture of a, what this guy from the 1600s was writing. His name is John Flavel. And uh, he's writing about this idea and, and about talking to ourselves and whispering our, to ourselves. And he says that we need to have I can't remember the term. Admonitory meditation. Admonition meditation. And what he said was, is I have to admonish myself with God's word. Now, some of you don't like that because you think admonish means this. In our culture, we don't do this. 
in the 1600s they did this. And he says you need to admonish, you need to tart, talk harshly to your heart because your life depends on it. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together. Well, God, that leaves us feeling a little uneasy because we want this to be fuzzy and warm. And Lord, I just pray for every one of us. I pray that you would help us to know the condition of our hearts, Father. I pray that you would help us today that we'd be saying that we want to make you our number one priority. It doesn't matter how old we are. I mean, we could be, you know, here we're 10, we're sitting in the service, we're a teenager, we're in college, young adult, just starting out, or we're older. Life's about over, maybe. It's never too late to pursue what God says is most important, and that would be him. So I pray that you would help us to know those of us who have been, been reckless with our hearts and we've been indiscriminatory about what we've been allowing in or what we've been pursuing because we think that if I need it or if I feel it or if it's going to bring me joy, it must be good. And that's not what the world teaches. That's not what we learn, not what the Bible teaches. And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to guide our hearts, that we would learn to speak your word into our, into our lives, speak your word. Uh, into our situations, that our decisions won't be made upon what we feel, but would be based upon what your word says, and that we would be able to corroborate everything we say from your word. I pray that you would help us to learn to whisper more regularly your words of truth into our lives. And I pray, dear Jesus, that you would give us the strength to have admonitory meditation. Because I know with me, sometimes I just need admonishment. Because I don't want to hear the truth. But I pray that you would be gentle in your admonishment of us, God. And we thank you. pray that we would follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.